millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and I am in the U.S. this week. I'm conducting research for my new book on the history of American warfare. But while I'm here, I'm meeting up with some old friends and colleagues to bring you new histories of war and conflict. Now, I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, which is the home of Yale University. So while I'm here, I'm meeting with my old colleague, Mike Brenners, who is the Associate Director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy. He has written an amazing new book called For Might and Right, Cold War Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy. He takes us through that delicate period, 1945, when the US had to reassess all its threats in an emerging Cold War period. It transformed from relying on ships and tanks and guns towards high-powered, sophisticated rocketry, intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear technologies. And with this came a shift in the politics of the United States. So here he is, Mike Brenes, on the Cold War. Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy. Hi, Mike. Great to see you again. Nice to see you. How have you been? I'm good, thanks. How are you? All things considered. (laughs) All things considered, I'm very well. I'm happy to be able to travel just a little bit for the first time in 18 months. And, um, you know, I couldn't think of a better place to be here on the East Coast on a beautiful day, sitting in the old Yale office. I've got a picture of Churchill on the wall here. (laughs) All the books on war and history and politics all around us. The great names in there as well. And what's that? LBJ, Kissinger. Some controversial yeah, Nixon, stuff. Nixon, there too, Nixon. Okay, so all the controversial. Yeah. Ones. <laughs> and there's there's on the wall. There's Ford and Nixon and Carter and Reagan. Well, this seems like a pretty good environment to discuss what we're going to discuss. Sounds good, right? Okay, so let's get into it. We know, Mike, that in times of supreme emergency and crisis, that these are periods that allow us to galvanize massive change in society and the way we think about what should be economically prioritized. We can look back at the establishment of the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK after the Second World War, or the massive reorientation of industry and the breaking down of gender norms to set women to work in factories in the UK after the First World War. 
But in your work, you focus on how the global Cold War period influenced American politics and American society back home. So tell us, give us a little glimpse into this. How did the Cold War affect American society? Well, there are several ways, of course. The first way that the Cold War affects society, and the, one of the key themes in my book, is that it creates employment on a large scale. Obviously, World War II creates mass employment through war. You have over half of GDP is produced from the war. As you said, it brings women into the workforce and overall creates opportunities for people who would not have them outside of a wartime context. But what's different about the Cold War in terms of society is that you now have America producing weapons, producing materiel, war materiel, in a peacetime, arguably a peacetime status. You know, that is, we're not engaged in a war like World War II. There's a global conflict, certainly with the Cold War, an ideological conflict. But there doesn't seem to be, at least in my view, in 1945-46, a war on the horizon, and 47-48 as well. And so what you see, therefore, are numbers of people looking to get jobs from a new industry, a Cold War industry, a military industry, that is increasingly going to create opportunities for, as I say in my book, a select group of people as opposed to a large group of people that you see in World War II. That is, where World War II brought low-wage workers, blacks and women, into the workforce. The Cold War and the weapons that are produced for it demands high-skilled well-trained individuals, because a lot of the material that's being produced is not actual physical material. It's, it's research and development into new weapons, ICBMs, missile defense systems, things like that. Those don't require a manufacturing base, so you don't see the types of jobs being created and opportunities created you see during World War II. So what I argue in the book is that the Cold War essentially creates economic opportunities for those who can benefit from them the most, that are most educated, predominantly white, and predominantly in a good overall societal position. So that's one way I think the Cold War shapes American society. And there are other ways, I think, too, certainly in terms of shaping ideas about gender and race and how the state is viewed. I think that's one key development, too, how people think about the state, how the state influences their lives. But in terms of my book, what I'm really interested in is how people look to a Cold War economy, a political economy based around producing military weapons for the Cold War, how they look to it to benefit from it in various ways. Whether the Democrats or Republicans, liberals or conservatives, they're overall looking to see what the Cold War can give to them, both materially as well as ideologically and culturally even as well. So we're talking about the ways in which crisis can shape societies and the political decisions that are made as a result of that. Is this a conscious political decision in the United States? Mm -hmm. Is this something that is set to specifically prioritise and benefit those who have come out of the Second World War, but they're from a privileged elite? Because surely they have to have quite a substantial educational background to go into the development of something like high-tech missiles and side-by-side mm -hmm. -side with the space programme. And we also know how many former Nazis were involved in the space programme sure. as well. Sure. So is this a conscious decision by American elites? And if so, who to make sure that this small section of American society benefits not just then, but long into the future? Yeah, I think it's a conscious decision in the sense that 
there's a clear decision made that we don't need the types of weapons that were made during World War II. We don't need the manpower. We don't need the infrastructure that's supplying the Allies the ability to win the war during World War II. That's certainly not the case. And with the Cold War being an economic war as well as a political war, a cultural and ideological war, as well as a military conflict, again, not in the sense of obviously a quote-unquote hot war, there's an understanding that things need to shift, right? The, we don't need the same plans to make weapons. We don't need the same workforce. But what happens, it's not an accident to say like things just happen. Right? In history, nothing just happens in the sense of the fact that people make decisions and consequences come from those decisions. But what I argue in the book is that both Democrats and Republicans see that weapons are going to be produced in certain areas that they weren't produced before in other parts of the country. So whereas in World War II, you saw the Midwest and the Northeast being the centers of plane production, shipbuilding, we don't need those planes anymore. We don't need those ships anymore. Instead, what we need are isolated areas of defense production in parts of the country that are deemed not exposed to security threats. So you start to see the decision made by both Democrats and Republicans to create missile silos in North South Dakota, to create defense plants in the South, lured by cheap labor and cheap land as well. Texas and California also become sites of defense production, ICBMs and the like in Texas and California, high-tech development. So that is a decision that is made by the Defense Department or the Defense Department after 1947 and by elites or by representatives in Washington. But the way I talk about this in the book is that people don't see it as a deliberate decision. They're looking for a job. They're looking for an opportunity. They're moving, obviously, as they did during World War II and during World War I. They're moving to find jobs that defense offers. And that is going to create a sense, again, of sort of winners and losers, which is what I say in the book. That those who benefit from the defense economy do well, as you've already established, and those who don't don't do well. But that doesn't mean that people who don't do well in areas where a defense industry or defense contractor dominates says, oh, well, I didn't do well. I'll go look for another job. They actually, if you're in a town where a defense contractor is the primary or one of the primary employers, you say to yourself, how do I get a job at the government plant or how do I get a job? How do I somehow benefit from this? And this is going to mean that those who lose from this contracting regime during the Cold War are going to be demanding those jobs from the representatives, their local and federal representatives. They're also going to be saying, hey, we lost it out to this contract for this part, to produce this part for the Apollo space mission. How do we get that contract? Angry at the federal government and sometimes corporations too for not uh, giving them that contract, which they can again to get a job. And I think that's a key development in the Cold War that shapes how we think about politics and society. To go back to your first question is that People look to benefit from the Cold War. And if they don't benefit from the Cold War, it's a zero-sum game, but they still want a piece of the pie. And I think that's going to shape how people think about politics, what the federal government does for them, what it doesn't do for them, and a sense of how the state is going to, again, go function in their lives and what the federal government can and should be doing to help them overall in this period. So is this also a time when you see a ramping up of political lobbying by military industrial actors, private industries that are seeking to capitalize and actually probably keep their companies going at the end of the Second World War. Is this the birth of the military industrial <laughs> complex? 
Yes and no. I use that term in the book. That's obviously a loaded term. Comes with all sorts of connotations. I do think, though, that there's a clear link between the military and industry. Many people who are in industry don't want to antagonize Congress, don't want to antagonize, at least up until the 60s. Up until the 60s, you know, there's a sense within most defense contractors that they want to have a good working relationship with Congress, that they don't want to antagonize them. So the lobbying efforts aren't as sophisticated as they will be after the 1960s, 1970s. But there are connections between industry and Congress. Former military officials end up, as they do now, getting jobs working for defense contractors. And there is a clear employment connection between the military and industry. But the sense of the military-industrial complex being this conspiratorial entity is somehow pulling those strings of war. I eschew that altogether. I think that's obviously not fruitful in historical terms. Because if you look at some of the actors in the military-industrial complex, they are sometimes feeling they're on the margins, particularly in the 1960s when there's a large anti-war movement in the United States opposed to the Vietnam War. There's a critique of the military-industrial complex. That word, which it comes from Dwight Eisenhower's 1961 farewell address, starts to appear in the lexicon of American culture at that time. There's books written by former generals critiquing the military-industrial complex. There's TV specials on the military-industrial complex. And so in that time, of course, you would not say that the military-industrial complex is pulling the puppet strings necessarily or dominating key sectors of government influence. They're really quite reactive in many ways to the larger culture that they're responding to. But certainly there is, you know, even during that time, a clear effort by the military-industrial complex or members of what we consider the military-industrial complex to be lobbying on their behalf to gain, obviously, defense contracts from the federal government that's going to benefit them, respectively, both the employers and employees of the defense industry, and to increase privatization of the industry as well, which starts to happen well after World War II, or during World War II even, it starts to happen where members of the defense industry start lobbying Congress and trying to get regulations reduced, which is really what leads to the birth of the military-industrial complex in the 50s and 60s is the way that private industries dominates defense production. And I think that's true in this period in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And the lobbying efforts of defense contractors become more sophisticated after you're allowed to have political action committees and efforts by not just defense corporations, but other corporations start to form lobbying efforts and be really entrenched in Congress and on the Hill and start to dominate our politics in a certain way. So does that get worse during the 1960s? Because If I think back through my history and my work in the archives and the Library of Congress and going through people like Robert McNamara's papers, who was JFK's Secretary of Defence, I just remember him grappling with trying to bring that military budget under control. He's left with something that is spiralling out of control under Eisenhower. General Curtis LeMay is pushing forward with Strategic Air Command and finding all of these targets all over the Sino-Soviet bloc, and they have to create enough missiles to hit all of those targets and to ensure the destruction, the mass wiping out, actually, of both cities and military targets. And McNamara takes this, and they try and instill a mutually assured destruction idea. And I remember some of the reasonings behind that being economic. So if you can set a cap on what you need to destroy your enemy, then you don't need to produce anything over that cap. So it brought the budgets and the need for so many missile systems and nuclear warheads under control. So does it get better in the 60s because of that, or does it get worse? 
There's a key moment that you're referring to, 61 to 64, where yes. McNamara decides to rein in superfluous defense spending. McNamara brings a mathematical approach to defense production. And McNamara reinvents the procurement process in the 60s. McNamara, he shapes how defense contractors bid for contracts. And the idea is that multiple corporations bid and the defense department selects the contractor that's going to provide the weapon in the cheapest way possible, in the quickest way possible. And this is, again, a very efficient way of organizing defense production, which was not efficient. I think arguably still not efficient, even though McNamara has tried to somewhat reform the process. And McNamara does physically, personally go into defense communities, areas where weapons are being built and say, we're going to get you off of the defense industry. You don't have to work and supply the defense department with this thing anymore, whatever they're building. So in Long Island, for instance, it's a plane that McNamara doesn't want doesn't feel that the United States needs anymore. And he comes into uh, Long Island, New York and makes the speech and says, we're going to provide you with different work, peacetime work, maybe, but different work that is more efficient. And this angers, as you can imagine, a lot of people. <laughs> you get worried, right? You think you're going to lose yeah, your job. Exactly. And so McNamara doesn't have a sense of the human side. You know, this is a problem with McNamara perhaps overall. He doesn't have a sense of the human side of what he's doing and the labor side of what he's doing. And there's 61 to 64, as I said, also within this context of McNamara's decision-making is the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, which leads to the limited test ban treaty in 1963, an effort to reduce nuclear weapons, or at least nuclear testing, which is what the LTBT does, and then an overall rethinking of defense production, so much so that in Congress, you get efforts to convert defense spending by George McGovern, Warren Magnuson, who's a Democratic representative from Washington, McGovern's representative from South Dakota, later presidential candidate in 1972. And they create commissions that don't last very long to try to find ways and bring in people, speakers, to convert defense jobs into peacetime jobs. The problem is the Vietnam War. And then the Vietnam War in 1965, that just recalculates, reconfigures everything. Because now we're going back to a more traditional style war. We need that traditional ordinance that was produced in World War II. That leads the defense budget to spike to, I believe, like 9% of GDP, whereas hovering more towards 6 5%. And the jobs that the Vietnam War brings, as you can imagine, in manufacturing weapons start to be demanded again. And that changes how defense spending is seen and the opportunities to reduce defense spending and to make some changes, even in a somewhat inhumane way that McNamara does it, go by the wayside until you get to the late 60s and early 70s when the Vietnam War becomes a quagmire, then we're rethinking defense spending and the critique of military just a complex again starts to appear in the late 60s and early 70s. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit 
wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What is the percentage of U.S. defense spending today compared to GDP? I think it's, what, 3%? 3%. So does it get better after the end of the Vietnam War? Do you start to see some sort of return to the measures that McNamara tried to put in place, or do things start to get out of control? So what Nixon does, actually, he comes into office, Nixon of all people, says that there's going to be a peace dividend. And he's not saying this out of sense that he sincerely wants a peace dividend, He's accepting that the culture has changed. And Nixon also is an architect of, as I'm sure you know, James, the detente, right, and the efforts to open negotiations, open diplomatic relations with China, to basically put the Soviet Union on the margins. Triangular diplomacy is also something that appears in an effort to pursue that. Nixon wants to get out of the Vietnam War. Of course, he escalates the war in various ways, first aerially in bombing in Cambodia and then with troops on the ground in Cambodia in 71 and escalates the air campaign again. But still, there is a policy of detente, or at least a recognition from the Nixon administration, that defense spending is going to be reduced. That he has a Congress, a Democratic Congress, that is not on his side and not going to give him what he wants in his defense proposals. And he's also trying to accommodate the culture, the larger culture, and the critique that you had in the late 60s and early 70s about defense spending. But it drops, certainly it drops from 9%, but the percent of GDP dropping doesn't overall indicate a detachment from or disinterest from relying upon military supremacy as the means for the United States to carry out its foreign policy. Is that in order to spend more on Vietnam? So are we talking about cuts in defence spending away from nuclear warheads, missile systems? Is that where the cuts take place? And then is that transferred through into Vietnam? Or 
And I've always wondered this. Is there a conscious consideration by the Nixon administration that they need to get this bloody budget under control? Because if not, it could destroy the American economy in the longer run and send the US somewhat bankrupt if they get lost in these wars and overspending on nuclear weapons as well. Something perhaps we see with the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. and the collapse of the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. at the end of the 80s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think Nixon is in a position where he doesn't want a defense budget in the ways that Johnson had a defense budget, meaning he doesn't want to appear that he's building up America's military forces. And he's not in the same ways that Johnson is, obviously. But Nixon is not anti-war, obviously, figure. He's not someone who is opposed to a large defense budget. And this is a point I make in the book, is that Republicans, well before Nixon, have accepted, whereas Republicans prior to this time were critical of, have accepted a large defense budget, have accepted that, that the United States is going to rely upon military supremacy and that it's going to need military bases and military power in the ways that it, it did not have to carry out its foreign policy interests prior to 1945. And this is all wrapped up in the context of anti-communism in the 40s and 50s. And Nixon is very much informed by that period. And he's not disinterested in using military power. But he is pressured by the right to do more on defense. Nixon is consistently hammered by William F. Buckley and the National Review and other groups saying, really, stop negotiating with China, stop these strategic limitations talks with the Soviet Union, which is also what Nixon pursues. This is not in the interest of the United States to do this. So he is in a position where he's trying to say, well, we're doing the best we can. The Democrats are opposed to us using any power I think this is obviously a straw man, but, you know, we're using any power and then the right saying they're not doing enough. And Nixon's trying to arguably rethink foreign policy in a way that would keep his chances for political survival intact by 1972, reduce military spending. Yes, but not in the ways that certainly people in Congress would want or the left would want or anti-war movement would want. And that is something that he is going to rely upon when he runs for office in 1972 is say that we're getting out of the Vietnam War. There's a Vietnamization process that comes out of Melvin Laird, Secretary of Defense, and his ideas, but still Nixon takes credit for it. We're reducing military presence in Vietnam. You know, we're reducing overall spending. We're not escalating the war, but at the same time, he's decrying the Democrats in Congress for not giving him what he wants on certain defense proposals. For instance, like an anti-ballistic missile shield, which is what he wants. And he says, like, the Democrats don't give that to us. And there's other programs, too. So he's trying to play this middle ground, and I guess he's successful because he gets reelected overwhelmingly in 72, but (laughs) doing so in these deceitful kind of ways that Nixon is known for, perhaps, sometimes. I've got a bit of a, um, I'm going to call it a controversial question, and it's up to you how you answer it. Good, I like controversy. I'm going to to fire it straight at you. (laughs) Right, so these politicians on the right, those who are Republicans, who are pressuring Nixon to continue to produce these weapon systems, continue to take a hard stance, to take get out of these talks on cooperation and de-escalation. Are these politicians that are also linked in, perhaps, to lobbying on behalf of the aforementioned arms groups, mm. weapons manufacturers, mm. industry, is it that much of a close link into industry politics and then trying to pressure presidents? It's not in the conspiratorial sense. Like there's like they're having these shadowy meetings. Well, that's less fun. That's less. <laughs> but you know, Buckley, various members on the right, create these kind of quasi think tanks that 
regularly host military officials. In the 1960s, I talk about in my book, these Cold War seminars that are hosted throughout parts of the country, which are geared towards ostensibly a general public to come hear about the dangers of communism. And these are bipartisan. Southern Democrats attend these, but also members of what we call you know, the hard right are part of this. And then you have also people like Edwin Walker, General Edward Walker, who was a member of the John Birch Society, connected to the military, but even not people controversial like that, just sort of at the high military official level, giving talks and vice versa, right-wing conservative figures giving talks and speaking at speaking events. But there's not this sort of sense of like coming into how do we actually get power and how do we actually wield it in this, sort of, like, this very conspiratorial way? But Nixon does, for instance, hold a meeting with members of the conservative movement in 71 or 72, I believe. But this is with William F. Buckley, Alan Riskin, who's a conservative figure, members of the American Conservative Union. It's not Nixon, it's Kissinger actually holds this meeting with them and says, you know, what do you want? I'm trying to negotiate the terms and they would sort of leave the Nixon administration alone. And they basically say, we need more defense, more defense, more defense. And Kissinger's on the defensive saying, well, we're doing what we can, again, against a hostile Congress, against hostile Democrats. And then those right-wing figures linking up with usually retired members of the military who would then go and feel that they can be outspoken on the fact that the United States is not doing enough. Emil Zumwalt, for instance, uh, is one of these figures. But there's not this, again, I resist this because it's, this is often how the military is discussed, sort of the conspiratorial sense of like a shadowy enterprise. I think what I try to do in the book is show how much of what I call this Cold War coalition, those individuals in the United States were dependent upon the military, operating within a structural framework that is not necessarily within their control, but still have agency and still are working as actors facing contingent forces and how they respond to them in ways that show us, I think in sometimes nuanced ways, how the defense industry and the economy of the Cold War developed in ways that wasn't predicted. You know, I think now, of course, we can look back and say, oh, yeah, obviously, perhaps certain moments in Vietnam, things weren't going to go well, but people obviously didn't know that at the time, and they're reacting in certain ways. And I think that's something that comes to the fore, too, when talking about the connections between these various people, is that they're looking to link up and operate for their mutual interests in this coalition, but they're not necessarily friends at the end of the day. And you don't even recognize that they're in this coalition together in a formal sense. No, you know, down to a basic elemental level, these are people in an industry seeking to keep their industry going, seeking to keep their right. jobs going, make a profit and earn a living, right? Like any pressure group, I suppose, whether it's farming or fishing, right. it just so happens that the military industry is engaged in killing and right. waging wars. And yes. so is a little more controversial, perhaps. Now, I don't know about you, Mike, I'm going to say probably the case, but I have been in many meetings that sound very similar to those that you say took place in the 1970s, where you have a retired general, a member of the military, talking on behalf or at an event sponsored by an arms dealer, a military industry. Does this still happen today? Is this still something that we can say is a legacy of that period, something that is unchanged? Sure. It's actually gotten worse, I think. It's gotten more conspicuous. There's a lobbying group on behalf of defense communities where they regularly bring in members of the military and also executives at defense corporations and congressional officials to come give talks and speak and lobby. You know, they have a Twitter feed. They have a Facebook feed. 
they're quite prominent and it's well funded, as you can imagine, because of the ways that corporations can influence politics nowadays, which what you know, after the seventies and eighties, they can now and they couldn't prior to this time. And I think that's something that's become more insidious, I think, in certain ways. The way that corporate influence has shaped politics overall, right? This is not a military specific issue. This is a broad political economy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one point that I think I refer to in the book a little bit is the end of the Cold War in the 1990s and the efforts by the Clinton administration, piecemeal, minimalized they are, to convert defense spending to peacetime jobs and just kind of disregarding like the larger international context and the larger domestic one. Clinton and his advisors to say, well, things have changed, times have changed, we're going to pursue this route, which obviously angers military contractors and people who depend upon them. But I think there's a sense now, similarly, because of what happened, you know, we're not at the end of the Cold War, but we're now emerging from this pandemic, and there's a rethinking of how we spend money and who we spend money for and on. And I think that's a, an opportunity to rethink how much corporate power is, or how much corporations, how much the military has we become dependent upon for, for jobs and growth. And I don't have an answer to this because I'm a historian. I'm not a commentator. I'm not even a political scientist. So uh, I deal with the past. But I think there's ways in which we have to see that there are opportunities presented to us. The history is predetermined. And now I think in 2021, as again, things are shifting, it's an opportunity to rethink things. Hey, it's an opportunity. You know, you've you, you, you got to get the point across. And I, I completely agree with you. And thank you so much, Mike. It has been fascinating to learn and even understand so much more about the political economy of the Cold War and the reshaping of American society, both historically and today. I've got to say, where can people read more? So you can buy the book, which is called For Might and Right, Cold War Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy from the University of Massachusetts Press website. Buy it from there. You can buy it from bookshop.org, which supports independent booksellers. And you can buy it other places too. But I encourage you to buy it from those places first if you are inclined, which I assure you after this podcast, you will be. So thanks very much, James. Appreciate that. Thank you so much, Mike. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks, James. It's always a pleasure. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.